Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 40th episode of the Nauticast. Man, 40 episodes is crazy. Entitled Festival of Fools, an analysis of the Game of Thrones' Catelyn 7, in which Catelyn Stark watches one duel and recalls another. She also does nothing wrong because this is a Catelyn chapter, of course. This episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timothy W., Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Lords Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N. and Hayden J., Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, and our newest members of the small council, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, and Sir Travis the Investigator, who joins our Lord Commander patrons, but is welcome to be promoted or get a new title at any point in time. <laughs> This is a Stanisocracy slash meritocracy, people. Damn straight. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, very much. Damn straight. Thank you, as always, and welcome to the council, Sir Travis and Ragged Michael. I also must say, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, is a truly badass title, and one I wish to claim to myself one day. Someday I will be Ragged Michael, Warden well, of, the North of the Night of Cast. <laughs> someday I'll be good enough for that, yes. Someday. So, our spoiler warning, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Lady Pepper N, who asks, Oh, ho, ho, do I have a question for you? <laughs> I want all questions to begin that way from now on, people. Oh, ho, oh, ho, ho, do ho. I have a question for you? That's the best it's way to start. It's almost Christmas season, you know? It's almost exactly. Christmas season, so we Perfect. do have Santa questions, yeah. I've been listening to Radio Westeros about their theory that something significant went down at the inn at the crossroads for a couple years. That was running around my head when I read the passage about how Littlefinger had been badly hurt in the duel, and as soon as possible was moved via litter back to the fingers. Maybe it was just the timing, but it seems to me that there is a distinct possibility that Littlefinger had something to do with the fact that instead of remotely running after Rhaegar, Brandon Stark rushes off to King's Landing with threats against the Crown Prince. So my question is, is it possible that Robert's Rebellion was set into motion by Littlefinger being a complete dick and tricking Brandon into going to King's Landing? When Ned says, you must be a bigger fool than when you fought my brother, to Littlefinger, the latter seems almost triumphant when he throws back, and your brother rots in a grave, but I'm still here. I know Littlefinger isn't responsible for everything bad that ever happened to the Starks, but clearly there has to be some reason why Brandon went in the wrong direction, into a place where running him running off his mouth would get him and his friends killed. And though Littlefinger started off from River Run way before Brandon did, maybe two weeks, the fact that he was moved by litter makes me wonder why George is letting us know a couple times that he was gone from River Run, but moving very, very slowly. Your thoughts? Is this complete crackpot tinfoil? <laughs> Thanks, and I love what you guys do. Well, thank you very much for the question. And uh, yes, it is complete crackpot tinfoil. Thank you for your thank you for your time, Jeff. All right, great. Let's talk about the synopsis. No, I'm kidding. No, that's a fantastic question um, to kind of kick this episode off, and it's very relevant to this episode because yep, this chapter is uh, has a large section which will become very dominant at the end of this podcast episode about Littlefinger and his duel with Brandon. So, is it tinfoil? Mm, <laughs> yeah, he's no. Trying to be nice. Yes, he's no. trying so hard to be I mean, nice, guys. Uh, I, I, I feel like – so the way that the, the storyline goes is that Littlefinger is wounded in his encounter with Brandon Stark and then he is kept in River Run for – I mean for two weeks, a fortnight is, is how this chapter tells it. And then he is transported by a covered litter by Hostertelli back to the Fingers and that is essentially the end of Littlefinger's story until he pops up again – in Lysa's story at as a Master of Customs at Goldtown and then as Master of Coin at King's Landing. So I, I have a hard time thinking that Littlefinger is the person who 
tipped Brandon off to go to King's Landing. That just feels like a more of a Brandon move more than anything else. Like, well, I'm the heir to the throne. If I have an issue, I go to my father. So as heir to the throne of Rhaegar, I'm not going to approach Rhaegar directly. I'm going to go to his father and be like, come out and die, Rhaegar. I don't think it's I don't think it's tinfoil necessarily, but I do think that Littlefinger's importance at this stage in the Song of Ice and Fire backstory kind of gets overstated in some fan theories. Yeah, and I want to I, I want to say that like the characters of Rhaegar, Brandon, Rickard, Ares the Second are not just pawns of other people's games at this point. That they are a- that they are acting in their own interests and they have wills of their own. And that they are acting in accordance with the characterization that Martin has crafted around them. But I admit that there's a possibility that Littlefinger has a greater role to play. You know, like we talked about in our last episode in our one of our theory discussions, we think that there's a possibility that the character Ethan Glover was a bit more than meets the eye. So there's a possibility that, sure, that Littlefinger played a role in steering Brandon towards the direction, literal, the literal direction that he ended up going in. But... I don't necessarily believe that's the case. What are your thoughts, Emmett? Well said, sir. I agree. It's certainly within the realm of possibility that this happened, but I think it's perfectly consistent with Brandon's character, as you say, to make this kind of hot-headed, impulsive move to just go to King's Landing and declare it before the open court. I don't think it really demands an explanation beyond that. More to the point, I don't think Littlefinger was a master manipulator at this point in his life. Yeah. Like, the the Peter we see in the flashback in this chapter, the Peter who challenged Brandon Stark to a duel, was basically Triss Botley, right? He was kind of right. this exactly. moony, uh, romantic fool who wasn't thinking in terms of spider webs yet. That's that's the that's the Peter we meet in King's Landing. That's the man he becomes. But he didn't Correct. turn into that man overnight, right after the duel was done. So uh, I think it's more of a slow burn. I get the sense when we meet Littlefinger... In King's Landing, when we see him kind of tear into Ned Stark and tease him that this is, he's been building up to this for a long time. He's been waiting to do this. And I don't get the sense that he has attained any part of that closure yet. Because you you get the feeling he'd be more satisfied with what he's done so far if he had really kind of led Brandon to his grave. I get the sense for Littlefinger, his plan has only just begun when we first meet him. I don't get the sense that he had already been manipulating as a teenager. Like, uh, compare him to someone like Tywin who Jenna says was already kind of a scanny politician as a child. Right. Or uh, someone like my favorite child, Big Walter Frey, the, <laughs> the, the murderous little Frey child who's already kind of playing the game. At his young age, I, again, from the flashback we get in this chapter, I don't think Peter Baelish was like that. I think he became that kind of person over time. Yeah, I think like this chapter illustrates more than anything that – It's a line that comes up in season one of Game of Thrones where Littlefinger says, I can't win the types of games that the nobles play. So I had to learn how to play a different type of game. I think this was the genesis, this moment between Brandon and him in in River Run some 16 years before events from Game of Thrones was the genesis of Littlefinger realizing that he can't necessarily be the strongest warrior. He has to win the Game of Thrones in a different way. And this, that way being the manipulation of finance, the manipulation of currency, the manipulation of people altogether. It's basically just manipulation, yep. just as a, a kind of an overall uh, statement about Littlefinger. But yeah, so I, I think that we're, we're seeing Littlefinger's, and I'm, I'm spoiling what I'm going to say for the end of our, our podcast here, but I think this chapter and this backstory that we're given is Littlefinger's supervillain origin story, so to speak, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. kind of a sympathetic, you know, uh, the little dude who's trying to fight for 
something. I mean, whether yeah, we'll, it's it, we'll get into that. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get into that a lot. But yeah, but I, I don't think that we're seeing supervillain Littlefinger at this juncture of the story, of course, because I have to say that every single episode. He said the thing. It. And we we do get that supervillain story as we are approaching a Game of Thrones and the letter that Catelyn receives, which does again come up in this chapter here. But I think it's a fantastic question, Lady Pepper, Pepper N. And we do recommend that folks who have not listened already do check out that Radio Westeros episode about the end of the crossroads and where they analyze four chapters that all take place at the end of the crossroads it's a fantastic episode they do some excellent fantastic theorizing there i don't want to spoil everything they say but there's a great Rhaegar liana theory about the end of the crossroads that i do recommend that you guys kind of peek your ears at because it's excellent and of course we do recommend our friends radio westeros in any and all things yep radio westeros are the best of what they do absolutely and thank you again for the question lady pepper even though we uh, we disagree about the theory itself <laughs> we very very much appreciate it we do indeed. So for those of you who've been listening along with us and are following us on social media, we just wanted to remind you guys one last time, when you listen to this episode on November 19th, make sure you listen to it during the day. We have uh, that night, we have the Jersey City George R. R. Martin event, which Emmett and I will be there alongside of folks like the Girls Gone Canon podcast, Joe the Magician, and others are also going to be there as well. And we are going to be doing our first ever live stream right after the George R. R. Martin event. So stay tuned for that. We'll have Joe the Magician, the Girls Gone Can podcast again alongside of us. We'll be taking your questions and giving some immediate feedback to the things that George talks about at Jersey City next week. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Can't wait to do that. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to that for a while. Uh, unfortunately, as a part of the consequences for uh, taking that little day trip, and because it's the holiday season, we are going to be skipping a week on the uh, regular podcast. So I know you'll all be devastated to, to hear <laughs> that, and you'll be weeping more tears than Alyssa Aaron, no doubt. Uh, but we'll be right back on it with John 5 after that. Yes, we will indeed. But to kind of satiate you guys a little bit, we will release the raw audio from our live stream on that Monday night. And we also have our next Patreon-only episode for all $5 and above patrons that will be releasing and coming your way on Thursday, the 29th of November. So that will be our – it's not. It's going to be a full-out analysis, but it's more going to be first impressions than anything else about Fire and Blood Volume 1 as we will be – we won't be able to tackle 900-plus pages of, of Fire and Blood material, you know, chapter by chapter, line by line, but we will attempt to give you guys a good – uh, synopsis of what we see and some of the cool hints we see for future di- story direction in The Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring, as well as kind of talk about the Targaryens because that's that that book is going to be heavy on the Targaryens. Heavy, heavy, heavy on the Targs. Certainly, yeah. We're going to be looking for any kind of scraps that hinted T-Wow, of course, as we did with the uh, sample that Martin released regarding yes. Alysanne and Alaric Stark and all that good stuff. So we'll be looking for a lot of those. Teasing out all the mysteries about Egan the Third and his regency and what happened with Absolutely. the dragons. There's going to be lots of good mysteries and nuggets to uncover. So that'll be fun. It will indeed. But this episode is about Catelyn Stark and her seventh chapter in Game of Thrones. And here is its synopsis. A rose and gold sky rises over the eastern sky in the veil. And Catelyn is here to take warning. Those are basically Lannister colors. She needs to kind of be aware of that. Catelyn watches as the light spreads across the veil, illuminating the land. The light creeps up the waterfall known as Alyssa's Tears, and Catelyn thinks about Alyssa Arryn. Alyssa hadn't wept when her husband, brother, and children had been killed. 
As punishment from the gods, when Alyssa died, the waterfall named for her would only cease when Alyssa's tears had watered the entirety of the black lands of the Vale of Arryn. Catelyn wondered how large a waterfall her own tears would make when she died. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's foreshadowing and then there's foreshadowing, right? <laughs> yeah. True. Okay, George, we see you again. Anyways, Catelyn asked Sir Roger Cassell to tell her the rest, and the rest is not good. Jamie Lannister and the Lannister army are marshalling at Casterly Rock. Sir Edmure Tully, Catelyn's brother and heir to River Run, had sent word to Tywin demanding to know what the fuck the Lannisters were doing, but they hadn't gotten a reply. So, Edmure had ordered the Riverlords Vance and Piper to guard the pass at the Golden Tooth, vowing that he would not yield any Tully ground to the Lannisters without first watering that ground with Lannister blood. Oh, mm. Edmure, love you, kid, but <laughs> no. That's not good, though, and Catelyn knows it's not good. She wonders why Edmure was the one giving the commands, though, instead of her father. She wonders whether Hoster was very sick and was passing more of his responsibilities on to Edmure. This deeply troubles Catelyn, but that's not all she's troubled by. Why in the world hadn't Lysa woken her up when the message had come? Well, according to Roderick, Lysa didn't want to wake Catelyn up, and she had planned to speak with Catelyn after the tourney. Is Lysa still planning to go through with this moment as far as Catelyn asks? Yeah, she is. But now that things at Westeros are really shaking up, it's time to GTFO the Vale and get back to Winterfell to be with Rob, Bran, and Rickon. They'll take a ship from Gulltown to get there. Sir Roderick isn't particularly excited about another sea voyage, but he's a loyal dude. So he says, yeah, sure, whatever. In the meantime, though, maybe there's still a chance to call this stupid fucking tourney off. But Catelyn's not especially optimistic on that count. Lysa was a walking disaster of a politician whose only constant was her inconsistency. The shy girl she had known at Riverrun had grown into a woman who was by turns proud, fearful, cruel, dreamy, reckless, timid, stubborn, vain. And above all, inconstant. Yep, yep. Catelyn reflects back to when Mord had come to Lysa to tell them about Tyrion's wish to confess. Catelyn, being perfect, had urged Lysa to hear Tyrion's <laughs> confession privately, but Lysa would have none of that. She wanted a show, and a show she got. Catelyn complains to Roderick that Tyrion is her prisoner, which, yeah, of course, accurate. And she thinks that maybe she should remind Lysa of this. And then the hero Brendan Tully, maybe Brendan B. Fish, I don't know, just saying, enters the scene, storming out of Lysa's chambers. Going to the Fool's Festival, you see. I tell you to slap some sense into your sister, but you'd only bruise your hand. Love you, B. Love you, man. Catelyn starts to talk about the bird from River Run, but Brendan already knows. He's asked Lysa for a thousand men to ride for River Run, but she'd refused him, telling him that the Vale can't spare a single sword. Oh, and by the way, Brendan, you're the, na- you're the knight of the Vale. You belong here. To which Brendan had told Lysa to find a new knight of the gate. He's a damn Tully, and he's off for River Run by nightfall. Bye bye, Lysa. Catelyn stinks and tells Brendan that he might not want to travel alone. Why not travel with Roderick and me as we're heading back to Winterfell? Besides, we'll get you your thousand swords from the north. Brendan kind of thinks about it for a moment and reluctantly agrees, and thus begins the Blackfish's War, which continues to this very day in 2018. Or Hell yeah. Or 301 AC. Get him, boy. <laughs> Either way. Either way, right. The Blackfish begs off and Catelyn enters the hall where Lysa's sweet Robin and some damn foolishness await. A garden with, with dirt... Grass, blue flowers, and tall white towers enters Catelyn's view. Yeah, Tower of Joy, RLJ, overtones much? Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that. Catelyn notes that the soil is too shallow to grow a true weirwood, so this garden acts as a kind of substitute. Anyhow, this was where the trial would occur and where the gods would decide Tyrion Lannister's fate. 
Catelyn spies Lysa looking super fresh and clean, surrounded by a bunch of potential suitors doing the weird shit that Lysa seems to be into, like eating fruit from Lynn Corbray's knife and listening to Eon Hunter's stories. And what of these bros? Would they achieve Lysa's hand? <laughs> no. 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 Nope. 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 Eon was older than John Aaron, while Sir Lynn Corbray was notoriously un- uninterested in the intimate charms of women. He's gay. Lysa sees Kat and calls her over. She asks Catelyn whether she wants a cup of wine. Uh, no, Lysa, we got to chat. After, Lysa says, turning away. Now, Catelyn says too loudly. People stop talking around Lysa, but not Kat. Lysa, you cannot mean to go ahead with this folly. Alive, the imp has value. Dead, he is only food for crows. And if his champion should prevail here... Well, those idiot monkeys known as the Vale Nobility huff and haw about how Sir Vardis will put Bronn down easily, and then mm-hmm. Vardis is a knight. But Catelyn knows better. She'd seen Bronn fighting his way through the high road to the Eyrie. It's really no accident that he was one of the few that made it. His sword was a part of his arm. And if Vardis prevails, what then? What are they actually gaining? Are they going to behead Tyrion? What will that accomplish? Oh, no, 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 Lysa interrupts. They're not going to behead Tyrion. They're going to make him fly. <laughs> Much Besides, better. exactly, right? Besides, Eon Hunter puts in, there was no honorable way to deny him a trial. Catelyn ignores all of those idiots. I remind you, Tyrion Lannister is my prisoner. Lysa decides right then and there that it would be an excellent time to remind everyone that Tyrion murdered Jon Arryn. And Sweet Robin wants to see the imp fly. And with that... Lysa swirls, swirls her skirts about and stomps off her lickspittle idiot monkey veil knights and lords following after her. When they're gone, Sir Roderick asks whether Catelyn really thinks that Tyrion murdered Jon Arryn. Tyrion, you know, kind of denies it, you know, that's, that's kind of a big deal. Catelyn states that she thinks that the Lannisters killed Jon Arryn, sure, but she's not sure whether it's Tyrion or Jaime or Cersei or all of them working together. But it's pretty freaking weird that Lysa is naming Tyrion now after saying it was the queen in her letter she had sent back in a Game of Thrones Catelyn 2. And Catelyn is now regretting ever reading that letter. She should have burned it before opening it. Sir Roderick says, yeah, I guess it's possible that it could be Ty- that poison could be Tyrion's work, but it's more known as a woman's weapon. Jaime really ain't the type to poison someone. He'd rather use his sword, as we saw in Eddard 9. But then, how would they make John Aaron's death look like an accident if it wasn't poison, Catelyn wonders. Sweet Robin shrieks behind her as a puppet knight slices the other puppet knight in half. The boy is utterly without discipline. He will never be strong enough to rule unless he is taken away from his mother for a time. Yes, of course, a new voice agrees behind her. Catelyn turns and sees Maester Coleman with a wine cup in hand. John Aaron was going to send Sweet Robin to Dragonstone, you see, the Maester says. No, 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 Catelyn corrects. Sweet Robin was going to Casterly Rock. Coleman shakes his head. No, begging your forgiveness, my lady, but it was Lord John who... And then, because this is a song of ice and fire, he's cut off before <laughs> revealing more by a loud bell tolling, indicating the mm-hmm. start of a fool's festival. Tyrion Lannister is marched to the courtyard, a septon and two guards accompany Tyrion to the statue in the middle of the courtyard, who Catelyn guesses that statue to be Alyssa Aaron. Sweet Robin does Sweet Robin stuff, talks about wanting to make Tyrion fly. Lysa says they'll make him fly later. Lynn Corbray says trial first, execution later. And then the two champions arrive, and the contrast is palpable. Vardis Egan is decked out in steel armor from head to toe, while Bronn is lightly armored with only a shirt of oiled ringmail and boiled leather. The Septon races his crystal, Bronn and Vardis bow, and the light shatters into rainbows that dance across Tyrion's face. Really kind of awesome super language that George uses here. Absolutely. 
He then speaks to an assembled crowd about how he hopes the gods will judge justly and blah, 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 blah. But really, that crystal, bro. <laughs> that crystal is mm-hmm. awesome. Absolutely he lowers good. it and the light dies away. Tyrion whispers a sweet nothing into Bronn's ear. Bronn, the chucklehead, chuckles. Meanwhile, Vardis struggles to get to his feet. A squire offers Vardis a shield, which he accepts. Lysa's master of arms offers Bronn a similar shield, but he spits and waves the shield off. And then we get... Catelyn thinking about dicks. No, wait, 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 swords. Bronze sword is ugly. <laughs> ugly as shit, but it's sharp. Meanwhile, Vardis' sword is John Aaron's own sword. Delicate, lovely, beautifully, beautifully engraved and wonderful. The sword was the one that John Aaron had held when he ruled his hand of the king, Lysa informs everyone. It's like the very image of chivalry, which means that this fight is going to go so well for Sir Vardis. Right, Emmett? Right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. But Catelyn has some thoughts about this. She thinks that Vardis might have been more comfortable with his own sword, but alas, no worries about that that account right now. Finally, Sweet Robin says to make them fight, and Vardis declares that he's fighting for the Eerie and the Vale, and you can almost hear like the intonation of his voice, and Bronn just kind of stands there and doesn't say anything because he's Bronn, and he's pretty awesome. And finally, it's fucking on. Fight, Sweet Robin cries out with extended trembling arms, and so they do. Vardis attacks Bronn, swinging his sword down on him, but the sellsword dodges the blow. Vardis chases him, bringing John Aaron's sword down and down again, but Bronn ducks out of the way from each stroke. Vardis presses on, though, carefully choosing his steps on the rocky, uneven ground, but Bronn keeps retreating, continuously moving out from out of the way from all of Vardis' blows. And then those idiot monkey Vale Lords begin calling Bronn a coward. Catelyn looks to Roderick for some insight. Roderick tells her he wants to make Sir Vardis chase him. The weight of the armor will shield and shield will tire even the strongest man. Yeah, that's exactly what Bronn's doing. Catelyn had seen lots of tourneys, but this trial was a smaller yet deadlier thing where someone could die on the slightest misstep. And this thought sends Catelyn spiraling back into memory. It was 16 years ago when Brandon Stark and Peter Baelish had met in the lower bailey of River Run. Peter had gone to this match in brawn mode wearing little armor, and when Brandon saw that, he adapted likewise and wore only just a little bit of armor. Catelyn had been promised to Brandon by Hoster Tully in marriage, but that hadn't prevented the young Littlefinger from attempting to fight for Catelyn's own hand in marriage, from Catelyn's hand in marriage. However, Catelyn had prevailed on Brandon not to hurt Littlefinger. She'd loved him like a brother once. And she would be very sad if he died. Yeah, you'd be sad, Cat. Not me. I would not be <laughs> sad if he had died there. Sick burn. Boop. Well, as you would have it, Brandon Stark had beaten Littlefinger like a snare drum, but Peter had refused to yield after repeated insistences on Brandon's part that he stop being a moron and finally give up. But Brandon, finally, potentially bored, potentially, I'm not sure exactly, just decides to hit Baelish with a kind of a lazy backhand that bites deep into Littlefinger below the ribs. The asshole had fallen then, whispering Cat as blood flowed down his arm and through his fingers. Catelyn had thought she'd forgotten that, but no. She remembers. Mm-hmm. Littlefinger had spent two weeks recovering at River Run, and Lysa had gone up to fuck Littlefinger, whoops, I mean provide <laughs> comfort to the boy, but little mm-hmm. Peter had refused Edmure Tully's attempts to visit him. Edmure had served as Bran's squire during the duel, and when Littlefinger had healed enough, Hoster dispatched Littlefinger off to the fingers where he was from. Sword on sword noises bring Catelyn back from memory. Vardis charges Bronn, driving him back and checking each of Varus's sword blows. Bronn notices that Varus is getting slower, and Bronn remains as quick as ever. Bronn's own ugly sword has even notched a piece of Vardis's shoulder plate off of his armor. Bronn dies behind the statue of Lissa Aaron, and Vardis plunges in after him, driving his sword towards Bronn and nicking the statue. 
Sweet Robin complains about them not fighting good and how he wants them to fight. Lysa assures that monstrous child that they'll fight eventually. And meanwhile, the moron idiot monkey lords and Knights of the Vale, who deserve nothing but the worst, are all making drink orders to the waitress and probably slapping her ass when she heads off to put their drink orders in at the bar. But not Tyrion. <laughs> His eyes are for the duel alone and for goddamn good reason. His life depends on Bronn winning. But then Bronn jumps from behind the statue and drives his sword at Vardis. Vardis tries to block, but Bronn gets his sword through, leaving a wing, taking a wing off of Vardis' helmet. Bronn draws his blade back and slashes at Vardis' stomach, leaving a gash in the knight's armor. Sir Vardis tries to push off his back foot and lunge at Bronn, but the sellsword is nowhere in sight. Until he is. Bronn steps behind Vardis and brings his sword down into the knight's elbow, wounding him. Blood streams from the wound of Sir Vardis' arm, and Catelyn sees that his strokes are growing slower. More clumsy. Vardis tries to block Bronn's attacks, but the sellsword is still quick, still attacking, growing stronger. Bronn's sword blows are carving holes in Vardis' armor, and even now those fucking monkey moron noble, Vale nobles know what's going on in this fight. But Lysa is not among those who realize what's occurring. She orders Vardis to end Bronn. Sweet Robin is growing tired. God, yeah, I, I get it. You're supposed to pity Lysa, yes. But you're also supposed to really dislike her in a moment because I really dislike her in that moment. Anyways, Vardis bull rushes Bronn and catches the sellsword off guard. Vardis slams his shield into Bronn's face and for a hot moment, the sellsword looks like he's about to fall, but he doesn't. He holds steady, catching hold of the statue. Vardis drops his shield and lurches after Bronn, hoping to cut him from neck to navel. But no, Bronn's back to dodging, ducking, dipping, diving, and dodging. Bronn puts his shoulder into Lissa Aaron's statue, and the statue falls on top of Vardis. Bronn leaps on top of the knight and kicks the armor away from Vardis, exposing an armored, unarmored weak spot between the arm and breastplate. And then Bronn drives his blade through the opening, killing Sir Vardis Egan. Silence falls over the veil. Sweet Robin asks if the fight is over. Catelyn thinks, no, you fucking moron, it's only beginning. But Lysa says, yup, all done. Can I make the little man fly now? Sweet Robin asks. Not this little man, Tyrion says, and that's actually the first time that Tyrion speaks in this chapter. This little man is going down in the turnip hoist. Thank you very much. When Lysa tries to protest, Tyrion tells her to fuck off and remember the iron words, says high as honor. Sweet Robin begins to break down, but Lysa has no choice. She orders Tyrion released. He'll be taken to the bloody gate alongside of his creature, Bronn, and released. They'll get their weapons back, of course. They're going to need them on the high road. The high road? Yes, the high road. Lysa is still interested in having Tyrion murdered. They'll probably die when they encounter the mountain clansmen. But Tyrion pretends that he doesn't mind. I believe that we know the way. He sure and does. that is, yes, he does. And that is a Game of Thrones Catelyn 7. Wow. Catelyn is great. That's my analysis. Isn't she great at it? <laughs> yeah, I'm running out of ways to say, hey, look, it's a great Catelyn chapter. <laughs> right. And that's only going to get worse when we reach a Clash of Kings and a Storm of Swords, because if anything, her chapters somehow get better from here. Yes. Uh, you know, no big deal. It's just yet another perfectly balanced mixture of action, world building, plot groundwork, and some really vital backstory that only achieves its full weight when you come back to it as a rereader. Yes. Above all, Catalan 7 is loaded with these big, underlined thematic statements about class, violence, the blind spots of romantic tropes, and they're all bound around the two duels that are the heart of this chapter. Bronn versus Servardus Egan in the present day, and Brandon Stark versus Peter Baelish in the rose-colored past. Yeah, it's it's interesting all the parallels between the two duels. We're going to talk a lot about the Littlefinger duel with Brandon. We will also talk about the Varus duel, obviously, because that's what this main feature of this chapter itself. But I think that they are in that George intentionally structured this chapter to include that Littlefinger backstory because it does illustrate 
I don't know what the best way to put it. I, 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 does it illustrate social mobility in Westeros or how social mobility can be kind of impacted uh, or you can reach kind of that glass ceiling, if you want to call it that, in terms of a character like Littlefinger because he's not as high of a station in life as as Catelyn Stark is, as the Tullys are, that he is prevented from going higher than that. It's it's kind of an, it's kind of an interesting question, I think, that we're going to be addressing towards the end of this podcast. But yeah, it's it's, it's excellent this chapter is just excellent, though, in showcasing us a lot of the themes we've been talking about. And, you know, you know, we we kind of get a little, we kind of get some some growth, some some scuff, I guess, so to speak, from folks who say we talk about feudalism too much, which is fine. But you know, you, have, you can have your wrong, ugly ass opinions, but you know, we have to keep the the right ones, right? Why should we talk about one of the main subjects of the series? That's just silly of us. It's ridiculous on our part. I think we should probably be banned and shot into space before we're talking about it. Rereading Lord of the Rings. Why are you talking about nature so much, guys? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Rewatching Star Wars. Why are you talking about fathers and sons so much, guys? Because that's what it's about. But yeah, I mean, you you bring up a great point there about the kind of themes in common between the duels. I think a lot of what this chapter is about is the the intersection between class structures and chivalric tropes. How the the romance of the songs and stories comes comes up hard against not just. The realities of death, like we were talking about in Edward 10, but the realities yeah. of rigid class hierarchies. And that's something that uh, has affected Littlefinger his whole life, although he hasn't exactly reacted to it well. But we'll get much more into that as we go. Before the Storm of Swords, the chapter opens with another panorama of gorgeous Vale world building on a more melancholy note than previously. That the great opening paragraph, the eastern sky was rose and gold as the sun broke over the Vale of Arryn. Catelyn Stark watched the light spread, her hands resting on the delicate carved stone of the balustrade outside her window. Below her, the world turned from black to indigo to green as dawn crept across fields and forests. Pale white mists rose off Alyssa's tears where the ghost waters plunged over the shoulder of the mountain to begin their long tumble down the face of the giant's lance. Catelyn could feel the faint touch of spray on her face. Alyssa Aaron had seen her husband, her brothers, and all her children slain, and yet in life she had never shed a tear. So in death, the gods had decreed that she would know no rest until her weeping watered the black earth of the Vale, where the men she had loved were buried. Alyssa had been dead six thousand years now, and still no drop of the torrent had ever reached the valley floor far below. Catelyn wondered how large a waterfall her own tears would make when she died. As you said, of course, in your uh, synopsis, this is... Definitely foreshadowing of Catelyn's turn during and after her own death. It's also, of course, part of the tear imagery that surrounds many characters, including both Catelyn and Lysa. Worth noting that Alyssa and Lysa are very common names. They have a lot of letters in common, so I think Mm Marcus is directly drawing a parallel there. More thematically speaking, I think it's notable that the tears never reach the ground. They don't water new life, just as Lysa's fertility was damaged by her father. And they don't bring closure, like Alyssa never gets to stop crying, just as Catelyn's grief will get her into trouble regarding Jamie and ultimately birth Stoneheart. She doesn't get to stop crying either, and she she gouges those bloody tear marks into her face at the Red Wedding, yeah. and they stick around as Stoneheart is kind of a symbol of what's happened to her. And, you know, we see Alyssa was essentially cursed herself for having a stone heart, basically for not weeping for her family as they died. The gods found that to be unacceptable. And the other thing I think we see in this little passage here is possibly a glimpse of the, quote, bittersweet ending of the series. You, you see the spread of dawn, hint, hint, mm. coming back after the long night. Mm-hmm. But it's contrasted with these infinite tears. They're called ghost waters, no less. Tears for, for people you've lost and for, for all the dead that the others raised up against you. So that might be what Martin is going for here, presenting a this gorgeous, you know, relieving image of dawn. But it, it can't stop you crying from everything you've lost. No, I think it's a fantastic point. I think it is... I think that 
I, I would I would think that Martin has, intends that intends that intentionally, right? I, I think that <laughs> when <laughs> it's kind of yeah. Um, I gotcha. You you got me. You you, you understand me more oh, than anyone else besides my wife. Oh, sweetie. Go on. <laughs> but no, I, I think it's that's fantastic, right? I mean, like it, you can imagine at the end of the series, the survivors yes. of the series, and we do know that not everyone is going to die at the end of a song of ice and fire. Stop with those bad ugly theories that the White Walkers are going to just slaughter everyone. George yep. has said it's going to be bittersweet ending, has said that there's going to be characters that will still be alive after the end of all the events in the series and in, in, in numerous interviews since 1996. But mm-hmm. you can imagine, say, Bran in his final chapter waking up if he's either in a werewood or if he's, you know, still in his paralyzed state and he's lost so many people in his life, his father, his mother, his brothers, you know, maybe Arya dies. I mean, that, that's been a, a popular theory that we did discuss in our episode on Arya 1 back, you know four or five months ago at this point that's it's, it's good that you know the white walkers have been defeated but at the same time it's sad that uh it, the cost of it was so high that lots of people died and you know and i think that ties to the story of Alyssa aaron because Alyssa survives at, at some level right we don't we, the story is kind of half legendary we're not yeah, entirely yeah. sure like why her husband and her children were killed and what the legend behind that was that wasn't actually it was something i was looking forward to having revealed in the world of ice and fire but i don't think it was revealed and if i'm wrong i know you're gonna message me about it that's fine i'm cool <laughs> with that but you know we assume that she survives but this uh, whatever tragedy or horror befell her her family but she still has to deal with the consequences of living on you know she has trauma for being a survivor much as the mm-hmm. same way that yep. characters who have survived, even by the end of A Dance of Dragons, characters like John and Danny and Tyrion, all have a sense of survivor's trauma for having survived as long as they have. At, at some level, it really varies on the on the character a lot. No, I agree. I could absolutely see uh, Sansa even on Endgame, like kind of mimicking this pose of Catelyn's, looking out over the dawn, but still crying for everyone who's fallen. I think yeah. this, we could definitely see some echoes here. So after that nice little passage, we move to the next topic in the chapter, which is the brink of war. As, as Catelyn Seven continues to ramp up tensions between Stark and Lannister before the outright outbreak of the War of Five <laughs> Kings. Not only are the Lannisters raising armies, but what we learn from Sir Roderick, as he tells Catelyn, is that the canny, experienced Hoster Tully has been replaced at the Prow River Run by the green, foolish Edmure. Uh-oh. <laughs> Ed- Edmure Tully is a favorite of mine. He is my, my sweet, flawed Same. child. and. This is our first real exploration of his character. He's been mentioned a couple times. This is the first time we really get a sense of who he is. And of course, a fucking course, he's introduced <laughs> doing something noble but stupid in a desperate, futile attempt to win dad's love because that's Edmure to the core. I think the overall takeaway, I think, from this part of the chapter is that swaggering egos are specifically what's making everything worse here. Yeah. From Jamie shedding blood in the streets to Edmure swearing he will defend every inch of Tully lands. Like, that's noble to a certain extent, but that's really impractical given... That Edmure is not particularly experienced in military matters. Jamie and Tywin are much more experienced. They have larger armies. And uh, uh, as I've said before, I'm kind of a neophyte in military matters compared to you uh-huh. and some other people in the fandom. But even I can tell just looking at the Riverlands on a map that trying to defend every inch is not how you defend the Riverlands. You have to fall back on the rivers. You have to fall back on River Run, which is really yeah. easy to defend with that moat they create, as we'll get into later in the book. Again, it's a, it's a noble move on Edmure's part, but... This is where we first start getting into a running theme in the chapter of the kind of the folly of nobility and all the chivalric, swaggering, romantic tropes they associate with themselves. Yeah. In defense of Edmure. In defense of Edmure, because <laughs> I'm, I'm an Edmure defender on mm-hmm. Ed, We will talk about that in significant depth when we get to A Storm of Swords when we talk about oh, yeah. 
Edmure's conduct and his interpretation of Rob's orders. But we will we'll leave that <laughs> sure. discussion. His artistic interpretation. Discussion. Right. Yeah. His, his correct interpretation, I think, is what you mean, right? Mm, sure, buddy. Sure. We'll have a fun fight about that. <laughs> That'll be a fun C- discussion. Come a storm of swords. But yes. I mean, Edmure, Edmure is not wrong is that the first step is to kind of secure the golden tooth because that is a narrow passage and it mitigates any advantage that the larger Lannister army would have in kind of pressing into the Riverlands. But that's only a first step, as you point out correctly. Yeah. He's got to have the Riverlands are great. And I think this is a, a point that Steve Atwell and mm-hmm. Jim McGeehan, something like a lawyer, have put, have put it out, have pointed out several times is that the Riverlands is excellent for that's something called defensive depth, where you have yep. the rivers that can act as natural boundaries and constrain the movement of armies. And the crossings are few and far between. And that's where you want to make your stands with your smaller armies to kind of constrain the advantages that this larger Lancaster army would have. Again, it's a good first step to secure the Golden Tooth, though, because that is a narrow pass. But that's the only step that Edmure is making here. And as it turns out, it's the only step that Edmure is going to make un- until he is captured by the Lannisters. And uh, yeah, then he decides to defend in depth when, Lannister- when Time and Lannister decides to invade. But that's that's a separate topic. We will talk about that significantly in depth here. But yeah, no, it's, it's no, great. I think you go ahead. Oh, I would say that's a fair defense. And of course, you know, I don't mean to say that we're supposed to buy into this initial image of Hoster as this perfect, you know, politician who always does everything right and Ed Mir is the fuck up. Our image of both Ed <laughs> and Hoss will be complicated significantly over the coming books. Yes. Uh, including A Storm of Swords, as you mentioned. And that only not only takes us back to the themes of the sins of the father and romance v. disillusionment that we saw in Edward 10, it also plunges his head first into the fractured family dynamics of House Tully. That's another major subject of this chapter in particular, is that the fish are rotting from the head down right now. Yes. Hoster is sick, indeed nearing death, as we will find out over the course of the book. Edmure is boasting but fatally unprepared, ultimately. Lysa is basically doing the same thing with an extra dose of irresponsibility. I love that line you read, and I'm just going to read it again just because it's yes, so great. Yes, please. The, sh- the shy girl she had known at River Run had grown into a woman who was by turns proud, fearful, cruel, dreamy, reckless, timid, stubborn, vain, and above all, inconstant. Elise is one of those characters who is more significant than her slight screen time would suggest. She's really only in a handful of chapters before she's killed. Yeah. But she's obviously super important for the plot and themes of the series. So I like that, Martin. Just in that one line, you understand how frustrating it is to deal with Lysa. Because it's not just that she's cruel. It's that she's sometimes cruel and sometimes nice and sometimes afraid. And like you, you don't know how to handle her, how to predict her. Right. And that's something that Catelyn really didn't take into account when she came here. And now she has to. It is worth noting, though, I think under that fickle surface, she actually is extremely constant on one point, which is that everything <laughs> she's doing is for Littlefinger. So yes. I think that's an interesting contrast between the, the surface appearance of Lysa as, as completely flighty, when in truth, she's actually really devoted. It's just to the wrong person. Lysa's characterization in this chapter is spot on. And it's not just that Littlefinger's manipulating her, even though he is manipulating her. Like, Lysa has a will of her own and has yep. a personality and has her own mental instability issues that are kind of bearing themselves out in this chapter. You know, I, I think that some readers might be forgiven for thinking that, oh, Lysa's being this kind of flighty and constant person because she's under constant manipulation from Littlefinger and she's taking orders from Littlefinger. But that's not my read of how Lysa's acting here. My read is that she is acting as herself here. She is, she has will, she has agency of her own. And that Littlefinger, and that Littlefinger, as much as he has a long-term strategic plan for Lysa, the the tactical working out of the plan by Lysa is all on her own, and it's working out so, so badly, as pointed out by Brendan Tully. Yeah, that's a good point. I think 
if there's any real change between Lysa here and Lysa later, it's not so much that she's being manipulated by Littlefinger, it's that she really misses him. Right. And she kind of emotionally is dependent on him. So when we get to A Storm of Swords and Sansa becomes our POV in the Vale, Lysa is still this very inconstant person, but there's a sense of relief in her face and her voice that, oh, thank God, Peter is here, my anchor is here. So that is right. a big change. But yes, you mentioned Brendan Blackfish, and I do love his the little scene we get with him in this chapter where he has just had enough. Because, of course, that's how bad things are going within House Tully that the black sheep of the family wants out, um, <laughs> wants out ASAP. And it's a good thing he does, though, because for all that Rob Stark is a prodigy and he outlines his military strategy on his own at Moktalin in Catelyn's next chapter, it's really hard to imagine his successful campaign in the Riverlands and the Westerlands without Brendan Blackfish at his side. So I give you full credit for that, sir. Well done. Well done. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate Stark. that. Yes, I uh I earned the Medal of Honor in the uh, the Riverlands campaign. <laughs> yep, leading, leading the Outriders there. No, but no, but you're absolutely right. Is that Brendan Blackfish serves as a in terms of like a modern military parallel, I would call him like a first sergeant or platoon sergeant. Okay, who has a lot of experience, whereas Rob is kind of like the platoon leader or the company commander that might not have as much experience, has a lot of education through the 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 form of Ned Stark's martial education of all of his sons, but Tully brings. A lot of experience from the War of the Nine Penny Kings to Robert's Rebellion to the Greyjoy Rebellion. He's the guy that's been there. He's been in the shit, so to speak, and he knows how to win battles because he has the experience. Rob has the training. Brendan Tully has the experience. But yep. you know, it's it's kind of unfortunate that not all of the nobility in the Vale is like Brendan Tully. I mean, Brendan Tully is not a is not a lord. He's a knight. But the rest of the knights and the nobles of the Vale. God, they are such idiot fucking monkeys in this entire chapter. I mean, they're so bad. So bad. Yeah, the Blackfish is definitely one of the premier military minds in Westeros, up there with uh, Stannis, Randall Tarly, maybe a couple others. But he's also just kind of a, a sensible, yes. a pragmatic man in general, as we, we saw in Catelyn 6 in his intro scene when Nestor Royce said that Lysa demanded Catelyn ride up the giant's lance, and the Blackfish rightfully called that stupid. And uh, yeah, the... The confederacy of dunces that Lysa has going here is just... I mean, yeah, speaking of things going all half-cocked because the nobility have their heads wedged firmly in their asses, you can see what Lysa's got going here is an even better example of that than Edmure's boasting. We're, we're coming off the chorus of assholes clamoring to slaughter Tyrion on the combat ground in Tyrion 5, and this pre-duel scene here demonstrates that the problem extends beyond Lysa. It's not mm-hmm. just her. The problem is systemic. It's, it has, involves her enablers and the mindset of their class in general. We're introduced to the scene with, quote, the high, nervous sound of a child's giggles. And boy, does that set the mood for what's rotten in the state of the veil, that we're just, we're just being run by this mad child and his maybe even crazier mom, and no one is willing to call them out because they all just kind of want to they want to kiss up to them and gain power through right. them and use them instead of actually challenging them or doing something about what's going on in the veil. You know, generally speaking, I think this fits the theme, especially in Catelyn's chapters, of the folly of childish behavior in the face of war. We'll see that when she reunites with Rob. We'll see that really strongly when she gets to Renly's camp with the Knights of Summer. Kill the boy because winter is coming, I think, is, is a huge theme in across the series, but really, especially in Catelyn's story. That theme of the kind of Knights of Summer extends back from Clash to characters we see here in the in the Vale of Arryn. extends forward as well as the Reach... Knights and soldiers, they do engage Stannis' forces in the Blackwater, and Randall Tarley has a pretty quick campaign north of King's Landing and a Storm of Swords. But all these guys are still essentially Knights of Summer, and as, not to be like kind of tooting my own horn, but as I kind of wrote about 
a little bit. Those Knights <laughs> of Summer from the Reach are going to be meeting a bitter, brutal end at the hands of the Golden Company and some elephants and archers and stuff like that. But we can talk about that at another point in time. But yeah, we're, we're, we're at this point now in the story where the really the soft underbelly of the nobility is being exposed here. Yep. And that they are extraordinarily incompetent in a lot of ways. I mean, not all of them are incompetent. Obviously, you have characters like Ned Stark, Brendan Tully, Hoster Tully to a lesser extent, and and others who are competent as as leaders and as as commanders on the battlefield. But a lot of these folks are just systemically just bad at their job. They have an inherited lordship and nobility or knighthood from their parents, and that doesn't necessarily translate into actual merit. There's no meritocracy at work here. And it's just it's it's so it's, it's such folly, man. It's such folly that these guys are all wanted to fight Tyrion back in the last Tyrion chapter. And now they're just like, you know, putting in drink orders and watching this great combat, you know, kind of go on. You've got characters like Sir, Sir Lynn Corbury, who we're going to talk about here in a little bit, talking about, oh, well, we'll just cut off Tyrion's head and send it to Jamie Lannister as a warning. Like, what? No, like Jamie Lannister, if, if that had ever happened, and of course it doesn't happen. Jamie Lannister would not take that as a warning. Jamie Lannister would take that as a personal insult because it absolutely is an insult and he would burn the veil to the ground. And but, you know, we, we're, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves here. But yes, the veil is awful. The, the veil's not awful. <laughs> the, the, mili- well, the nobility of the veil is awful. Exactly. This 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 particular flock is just awful. And yeah, they're incompetent and they're detached. And those two things have a lot to do with one another. Yes. The reason the Knights of the Veil are so bad at what they do is because there's never any consequences for what they do. Because it's all just a game to them. And as Ned says, this is needless. War should not be a game. And I think we see that theme running strongly through this chapter as well. I think it's interesting that this combat ground was originally meant to be a godswood, but the tree wouldn't take root there. And yep. despite of that, quote, it was there the two champions would meet to place their lives and that of Tyrion Lannister into the hands of the gods, which I think is an interesting little note. Because on one hand, it's framing the combat as unobserved and unjudged by any external divine force. Like, the gods are not here is basically what that little note is saying to us. Yes. You know, the gods can't observe. They're not actually taking part. On the other hand, we do get the righteous outcome in this duel. Tyrion is innocent and his yes. champion does win. So this might be a case of, as Stannis says, Stannis reference, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, justice flowing from men rather than the gods. Uh, of course, that godswood, though, the lack of a godswood, I should say, is also a sly reference to Lysa's fertility problems. The fact that Correct. a tree could not take root up here. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. Yeah. That's, you yeah. know, it's uh, the problems Lysa has suffered after what Hoster did to her. And that extends to that decay and that folly extends to her whole court. I mean, even the specific nobles who are playing the sycophant for Lysa today are completely unsuitable, as Catelyn said. Eon Hunter is too old and his house, like the phrase, will implode after he dies. We're <laughs> going to get more into that in A Feast for Crows and going to the Winds of Winter. And Lauren, Lynn Corbray is too violent and also, as you say, too gay. So <laughs> the question is, who is going to plant in this barren ground, this metaphorical ground that will take no tree? None of them seem suitable to Catelyn. As with Alyssa's tears, there's, there's nothing fertile here, metaphorically as well as literally. There's no f- foundation. There's no solid ground to build on. This is all just performance. This is all just image, and there's nothing actually there. And that's something Catelyn's kind of realizing about her sister and her court, to, to her dismay. Yeah, you're right about that. And I do wonder whether a character like Lord John Aaron, who is seen as generally competent and in leading Westeros and probably is a competent Lord Paramount of the Vale, whether they relied heavily on him and that yeah. kind of like let him kind of like do his thing and kind of run things as well as he did and didn't kind of invest in their own leadership ability and then kind of invest in their own leadership talent. At the same time, you can really see how Littlefinger takes the Vale not – 
I mean, okay, I'll just say it. He takes it so friggin' easily without even having a single soldier in his command besides, uh, besides Nestor Royce and his like 300 dudes. You know, that's, that's it. That's all the little finger needs to take the veil, but he's able to manipulate these people into easily, easily giving him a year to be the Lord Protector of the Veil for Sweet Robin. And, you know, from there, we know what's, well, we don't know exactly, but we have a pretty good idea of what's going to happen in the Winds of Winter when Littlefinger is able to manipulate probably these same idiot Veil Lords into going north to Winterfell to try and press Sansa's claim to Winterfell, as well as press Littlefinger's claim to Sansa. Yes, indeed. And yeah, their their arrogance and their superficiality really comes out in A Feast for Crows because Littlefinger knows them so well and knows how to manipulate them. And as you say, it's it, he doesn't even have to try that hard. And it's so blatant what he's doing, Sansa figures it out immediately. It's right. similar how in the same book, Euron is so easily able to manipulate the Ironborn captains and kings because he knows what they want and he knows they don't have it yet and he can just play them like a fiddle even though, as, as Dampere tries to tell his fellow Ironborn, Euron is clearly not on their side and right. clearly has bigger ambitions than just leading them in a glorious conquest. But I think you can see here Martin using the duel as a vessel for yes. talking about these problems with the nobility and how, how flawed they are. Just the, the sheer Great amount of point. bad arguments that come Catelyn's way when she's trying <laughs> to warn she's trying to warn them. She's seen Bronn fight. She's trying to warn Lys and the nobles, hey, this is not going to be a pushover for your boy Vardis here. Bronn knows what he's doing. And their responses are just pathetic. They, like, they range all over the place. They range from outright misogyny when one of them says, women understand little of these things. Uh, which right. is, is just absurd. Again, given what Catelyn just like survived the mountains of the moon, she's just seen a bunch of fights. Why would you, why would you say this to her? There's also elitism involved, of course. That's a huge theme in this scene. Servardus is a knight, sweet lady. This other fellow, well, his sword are all cowards at heart. Useful enough in a battle with thousands of their fellows around them, but stand them up alone, and the manhood links right out of them. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. And there's there's outright bloodlust, as you said, from Lynn Corbray. Behead the man. When the Kingslayer receives the imp's head, it will be a warning to him. <laughs> and then I think, and this, this gets at how it's not just flawed individuals, but a flawed system, is that people are hiding behind the letter of the law rather than its spirit. That uh, Lysa says, it was Tyrion who demanded a trial by combat. And Lord Hunter says, Lady Lysa had no honorable way to deny him, even if she'd wished to. Again, these are people who are just purely concerned with the image of being honorable. They're not concerned with the right. real values behind it. And that's something that, of course, comes up over and over again on A Song of Ice and Fire, that the the official knights and the official lords are, are just a bunch of fools who are only looking at it for themselves. And it's the not-knights, like Brienne of Tarth, or the not-lords, like Davos Seaworth, who are actually upholding the, the values yes. that are behind these chivalric tropes. And the, the people who are really on top of the pyramid, or on top of the mountain in this case, have completely forgotten those values or never cared about them in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're the folks that are able to stand on top of their mountain and they think that, and they think that gives them power to condemn an innocent man to death. And I, and I'm not saying that they didn't necessarily believe that Tyrion was guilty of sending the cat's ball after Bran Stark and also murdering John Aaron because they're idiot, they're stupid enough to believe that. <laughs> I mean, they're the, they're the idiot monkey nobility of the veil. But no, it, 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 it is fantastic though that we have such idiocy being proclaimed with such certainty. I mean, that's, that's yes, the thing that kind of gets that's me. That's the thing. How freaking sure these guys are that Bronn is going to fail, that their cause is just, that they can rely on their honor and on the letter of the law, but not the spirit. I think it's a fantastic point you bring up here. But, you know, that all leads us to the actual duel in the veil itself. The final 
showcasing where chivalry wins out, right? Chivalry is going to win at the end in this battle, in this duel between Bronn and Servardus. Right, Evan? Oh, cl- clearly, clearly. I mean, yeah, this is how justice is done in the Vale, right? To quote right. Tyrion. And yeah, the fact that uh, these lords are so certain about Servardus, not just because they're idiots, although they are, but because their whole worldview, their whole status in life is based on the idea that men like Servardus are just better than men like Bronn, just inherently, yeah. just as yeah. part of their character. Because if that's not true... Then why are these people sitting on top of a mountain? Why do they have all this nice fancy stuff? Why do they have a monopoly on violence if Servardus is not in fact just inherently better than Braun? That's that's the entire basis for the social mm-hmm. and economic system of Westeros. So of course they're sticking up for that. And I love the little detail that it makes Catelyn's mouth ache. She says <laughs> to talk with courtesy to these idiots, like she's just going, I can't I can't do this. I just can't do this for a second longer. Like, again, she's thinking about the better men who died to get her here. Yeah. And how seriously, how serious she took that violence and how meaningful it was and just how casually these men are talking about butchering here. It's just such a stark contrast. And it's, it's against this infuriating backdrop that Sir Roderick finally cast out on the whole thing and is able to bring up to her, you know, maybe Tyrion's telling the truth. Maybe yeah, we're doing maybe. all this for nothing. I do love... That how like Sir Roderick has to kind of frame that in the most delicate way possible because he's still right. talking about his lady's sister. As I've said before, I really like the how organic the Catalan Sir Roderick relationship is and how clearly they're used to each other in their roles. I think that comes through really strongly. But yes, as you say, then the champions enter the ring. Yeah, we start, we start getting into the duel itself. Yeah, this is the point where the story progresses beyond these idiots talking to these idiots watching to these idiots failing because I mean, <laughs> yes, I mean, this, this is, this is so emblematic of, 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 of the nobility of a song of ice and fire and of the feudal structure that we have Bronn, who is an excellent swordsman, whose sword is a part of his arm, which is, you know, echoes of echoes of echoes of Cyril Pharrell there. And that Bronn is not, doesn't have a sir in front of his name yet. He will eventually. And eventually he'll have a Lord in front of his name after true thereafter. So Talking about rises. social mobility there. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, he, he rises high in this world while a lot of these guys end up falling on their face or will fall on their face in the winds of winter. That's um, point. But no, it's 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 fantastic, though, that we have him contrasted to Servars Egan. You know, I, I love, 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 love the armor contrast there. I think it's 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 fantastic. But before we get to the armor contrast, though, there is a bit of interesting. I don't know if you want to call it dialogue, not dialogue. There's a bit of interesting allusions to the Tower of Joy and to the Trident in this chapter. I mean, uh, not to kind of like speak too much out of turn here, but we do get lots of stuff about, you know, now it begins, now it ends. We have the white towers that are rising up in the tourney yard. We have blue flowers in the garden as well, you know, things that are very telling, very much talking about what happened in the previous editor chapter with the Tower of Joy. So it's interesting that George is writing on the heels of editor 10 and had immediately calling back to that chapter and saying, hey, listen, the Tower of Joy, I mean, you might have read this for the first time and gone, oh, that was interesting. Okay, moving on. But now George is saying, hey, wait, this is actually super very much important because I am using all these references to the Tower of Joy in this next Catelyn chapter. And I think there's a whole lot of great metaphors and a whole lot of great uh, callbacks to that chapter, showcasing how important it is, but also showcasing some of the class dynamics that work in the Bronn versus Egan struggle, as well as what we saw at the Tower of Joy between Ned and his men and the three Kingsguard. Yeah, you did a great job talking about that class dynamic in our Editor 10 episode. And yeah, there's the the, the Catelyn flashback and the way it's cued feels very much like the last couple Ned chapters with his flashbacks to Lyanna. 
And uh, Servardus is framed very much like the Kingsguard at the Tower of Joys. It's kind of like yes. the epitome of chivalry. He's this literal shining knight. He's got this nice armor, as you say, covered in Aaron symbols. He's even got a fancy sword, just like Arthur Dane did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, as Catelyn notes, you know, that's not his sword. That's John Arryn's right. sword that was purely ceremonial that he wore on the Iron Throne. It's, it was never used in combat, and Servardus isn't familiar with it. He might have been, as Catelyn says, more comfortable with his own sword, one that was part of his arm. Uh, mm. Just like Braun, as you say. And that's so emblematic of, of the class critique being made here, that Lysa cares more about the public performance of knighthood. She cares yes. about the shiny surface to make her son happy, more than she does about keeping Servardus alive. Exactly. It makes, him, it makes him so much weaker in this combat because he's using a sword he's not familiar with. It gives Braun such an advantage. And as Catalan notes, you know, Braun's younger and taller and quicker than Servardus. He's already got plenty of advantages. He doesn't need another one, but Lysa just handed it to him on a almost literal silver plate. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it, it is talk about silver plate. I mean, he's, he's talked about as his armor looks silver. It's shining. He has layers of armor over himself. I mean, he's got, you know, we get the final, we get boiled leather is cool. Of course, which George goes back to time and time again, that, that kind of phraseology, we get lobstered steel. Another thing that George talks about here, <laughs> where, 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 where Vardis is, you know, just covered head to toe in armor, which is great. You know, Great in some circumstances, but maybe not necessarily on a 1v1 combat. And I think the contrast with Bronn, who just has a ring, who just has a shirt of oiled ring mail and has a simple sword, an ugly sword, right? I mean, they talk about that over and over again. This is an ugly sword and it's contrasted to Servardus's amazingly uh, intricate and beautiful sword, John Aaron's sword. But it's a sword that he's not familiar with. It's a sword that John Aaron held on the Iron Throne. But I mean, you do kind of wonder whether that sword serves that, whether John Aaron's sword serves a similar role as ice serves for Eddard Stark. And that is sure. more of a ceremonial sword more than anything else. I mean, George has talked about how Ned didn't use ice in battle. He used a regular sword and that ice was more of a ceremonial sword that Ned would utilize for his executions, as we saw in Bran's first chapter, but wasn't the sword that he would take into battle. But Sir Varus Egan is taking maybe, and, and again, that's just a theory. It's just a supposition that taking a ceremonial sword into battle with Bronn, who is using a live sword. That sword is alive, and that sword is going to be alive in his combat with Sir Varus. It's that classic theme of image versus reality, right? Bronn right. has the ugly sword, the sword you don't want to sing about. It's not a sword that's going to make Jane Poole develop a crush on you to go back to the uh-huh. hands tourney. But it is a sword that will save your life if you know how to use it. And Servardus' sword might be prettier, it might have a better legacy, it might fit more in a scene like the Tower of Joy, but it arguably contributes to his death. Yes. And I think that shows you how kind of, again, detached the, the noble class of the Vale is. They're literally sitting on top of a mountain, you know, in their, in their little apartments, and they just, they're not thinking about what the reality of this violence is. I mean, you have this little moment where Bronn and Tyrion share a secret laugh, like Tyrion whispers something to Bronn. Right before the duel and Bronn laughs. So it's, you know, we don't know what they said, but it's a nice little intimate moment between the two. Yeah. Whereas, like, you know, Sweet Robin doesn't actually care about Servardus at all. There's the moment early in the chapter when Sweet Robin is just watching puppets fight each other. Right. He clearly thinks about Servardus the same way. He's just, just a puppet for my amusement, just someone fighting for my entertainment, not a human being I'm putting at risk. Right. And Lysa, Lysa is also detached from the consequences of her actions in that regard because she's giving Servardus that sword. And as the fight begins, we get like a paragraph of it or so before Catelyn starts her flashback to the other duel. 
As the fight begins, the Lords of the Vale can only deem Bronn a coward for yielding ground. He starts moving right. backwards, and they're calling him a coward, but as Sir Roderick notes, no, that's a smart st- fight strategy. Because Sir Vardis is so weighed down by his plate, uh, because he's fighting with an unfamiliar sword, you make him tired. You make it difficult for him to move around and lift his sword, and then Bronn will have the advantage. As he says, that's how you fight someone like Gregor Clegane, and that's exactly what he does in this duel. Yeah, I mean, Bronn is clearly the one who has the advantage here, as much as Vardis has the advantages of armor, a great sword, and, you know, years of experience. Bronn also has years of experience, probably not as many as Vardis does. He was John Aaron's captain of the guards for a long time. So you can imagine a scenario where he was at Robert's Rebellion, potentially. I don't know if that's, that's been confirmed or whatnot. Maybe he served as well in the, in the, um, in the Greyjoy Rebellion too. So he has some experience behind him, but he is completely weighed down by all that he's wearing and by the sword that he has. And it's all something, and, and all of that kind of image and contrast between the chivalry of Servaris Egan and the kind of low cunning or not, or, or the, and the cunning and low armor that Bronn has all sends Catelyn spiraling backwards into memory towards another duel that she saw 16 years before between two people that, you know, still have some you know, relevance to the story, or at least one does, at least. A little bit of relevance. Just a little bit, just a little bit. Yes, just as Ned meeting uh, Bara and her mother in Edward Nine caused him to flash back to Lyanna, this duel sends Catelyn back in the past to another one. And you get the same themes as Edmure's boasting about defending Tilly Lands, the same themes as the Knights of the Vale just, you know, puffing up and talking about how Servardus is inherently better than Bronn. It's the superficiality of chivalric tropes in the face of real violence. It's... As we said about Edward Ten, it's about the moment all the smiles die. That definitely happens in this chapter, when all, yes. all the Knights of the Vale, with their superficial smiles, they fade in an instant when they see the reality of what's happening. So, like Liana, uh, P- young Peter Baelish had this drive to make the songs real. You can see him assuming that because the pure, low-hearted, lower-class kid in the songs, maybe named Pate, who falls in love with a highborn girl, he always wins. So Peter assumes that I will too. I have I have justice on my side, the gods and the songs, they're all on my side. But as with Lyanna, that led him to a bed of blood. Real life is less forgiving, and Peter's dreams die in that one brutal backhand that Brandon delivers. And what really, for me, makes this section of the chapter so brilliant upon reread is that it's not just a surface parallel. It's not just that they're both duels. It's not just that Morn is inserting backstory this convenient moment. This That duel from the past, the Brandon versus Littlefinger duel, has led directly to this duel in the present, because it was the outcome of that past duel that set Littlefinger down this dark, manipulative path, huh. and including, among other things, it led him to frame Tyrion. Wow. And if he great, hadn't framed yeah. Tyrion, this duel never would have happened. So they're connected. Here we are. As with Eddard Ten, the past is inside the present, and everyone is dancing on those puppet strings. Yeah, you know, that's, that's fantastic. I, I had never thought of it that way. I mean, I, w- I was thinking about it more... In the in the vase of or in the vise of Catelyn would obviously remember this duel between Littlefinger and Brandon because you know that's how memory works. I mean, you oh, call yeah. things from the past back to the present. You're taking events that you experienced and you witnessed, and you're relating that to present events. I mean, that's kind of the way that memory works. But I think it's a fabulous point that you make. That is all as a result of the you know the outcome of that duel itself between Brandon and Peter Baelish is that Tyrion is under trial here because Littlefinger survived that and he had decided that he was going to do something different besides be a simple tourney or duel combatant he was going to win a different type of way but again I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself just a little bit 
But yeah, so then we the the Braun Vardis duel plays out very excitingly and cinematically. It's it's very kind of clear and coherent. We know what's going on. We can see the the moment when Braun begins to win and the slow downfall after that. It's very well written. Yep. And eventually uh, Braun takes Vardis down. And it's worth noting how differently this plays out in the books versus the show, not just because the moon door is there in the show. Yes. But in the show, there was this implied critique of Servardus himself for fighting with honor. Lysa says to Braun, you, didn't, you don't fight with honor. And then Braun indicates to Vardis' falling corpse and says he did. Yeah. So there's, there's the theme which comes up a lot in the show that honor equals stupid. And it's, it's basically the Spaceballs thing of evil will always triumph because good is dumb. Right. Which is, which is not a theme I like, and I think is not actually the theme of A Song of Ice and Fire in general, or this scene specifically. In this scene, in the books, the critique is aimed squarely at the folly of the noble class as a whole yes. for sending men to die as if it's a game. Again, what Ned said about Sir Hugh. And of course, Martin, I'm sure, has in mind, you know, Vietnam and the World War One when nobles were sending men off to die for their pride. Yep. Uh, we're just coming up on the, the 100th anniversary of uh, the end of World War One, so that's that's kind of in the news and in the discourse a lot of late. Or, you know, just stuff even like at the beginning of the American Civil War when civilians would go to watch it with like picnics and marching bands because yeah. no one was taking seriously how devastating this war was going to be or how long it would last. That's the kind of mindset that Martin is criticizing here. It's not Servardus himself for fighting with honor. He is presented in a relatively sympathetic light as yes. he was in Tyrion V. He's trying his best, but he's a good man stuck in a bad system and his best just isn't good enough. Lysa is the one really at fault here. And even the blocking of the scene emphasizes that. You get like the weeping woman, maybe mm-hmm. Alyssa, as Catelyn says, and uh, that weeping woman statue blocks Vardis's sight, allowing Bronn to get the advantage. And then John Arryn's John Aaron's special fancy shiny sword shatters on her wing, maybe symbolizing how Lysa was the one to actually kill John Aaron. Hmm. Uh, really, and she, of course, is the last one to realize what's happening. Uh, blind with arrogance as they were, even the knights and lords of the Vale could see what was happening below them, yet her sister could not. Enough, Servatus, Lady Lysa called down. Finish him now. My baby is growing tired. That's the ultimate statement, man. Just the arrogance of that. Yeah. This is such a game. I can't even analyze what's happening, but I purport to be in charge of it. And really, all this life and death struggle, all this is meaningless because my baby is getting tired. That's the important thing here. It's like, it's like Sweet Robin's watching a cartoon and she's watching to turn it off. That's her attitude about men who are fighting to the death. It's just shameful. It is. And, you know, as much as like that critique that George is making about Vietnam and World War One. And, you know, I, I know there's, a, there's a great story at the first battle of Bull Run, how all of the families and wives and children of Union yep. officers had come and watched the battle on the hill. And they all we were picnicking, right? They were just having a good time. And then they watched all of their husbands and sons, fathers and brothers all die in a horrific battle that no one was anticipating or expecting, although they really should have been, given the advances of technology and, and the, the reality of what had been seen in Europe in the years leading up to our own civil war. But, you know, we also see that too. And, you know, the modern kind of conception of warfare is something we can watch on CNN, right? As we're eating Chinese food out of a carton. You know? Sure, sure. We're so desensitized to people actually dying. We can watch explosions. We can watch, you know, planes flying. We can watch cruise missiles striking targets and kind of watch it with dispassion. And we see that initially in the nobles of the Vale as they're, you know, basically just drinking wine and laughing and having a good time while two men fight to the death. I mean, that's just so, it's, it's such a fantastic and horrifying image. And, you know, at the very end where Vardis is clearly going to lose and everybody sees it except for Lysa, but Lysa has to come in with that, finish him now, my baby is growing tired line. You just are like, God, that's, it's so, 
I don't know what the best way to put it. It's it's really sad because I think you put it well. Is that Servardus is a good dude. I mean, he's not necessarily the the guy you probably want to hang out with, as as Tyrion points out in this last chapter. But he's he's not a bad guy. He's he has to obey the orders of Lysa Aaron because she is the Lady of the Vale. She is the Lady of the Eerie. She has the ability to command people to do stupid, immoral, ugly, stupid things, and that's just. It's tragic that the outcome of that leads to the death of a good man. And, I mean, it's good in one sense that Tyrion survives because he is innocent of oh, that true, particular true. crime. But That's it's a good point, yeah. Of that particular. He'll, he'll have more crimes he'll have to answer to at some point down the road. Uh, some true, some false. But, you know, Vardis doesn't deserve the fate that he gets. No. He's swept under the rug like Jory Cassell, just kind of collateral damage. A lot of these deaths we see in this first book kind of dwell on that, of, of the pawns versus players dynamic. And yeah, Servardus, I mean, as I said with Tyrion Five, I like him because he was the only one of Lysa's potential champions to point out just how gross and immoral it would be to have him fight Tyrion on the combat ground. So that's, right. that's what the values of chivalry are supposed to be. And for so many of the people in this class, it's just the image. It's just like Renly. It's just a hollow suit of armor. With nothing in it, and that's just kind of that's horrifying, given how much power these people have, and given the lives that they're playing with, and the fact that they don't even stick up to their purported values is just really underlines the folly of this entire system. And we get we get one final dose of that kind of hard reality versus honorable image on the way out. That uh, when when Tyrion has like, that great line of you know not this little man, this little man is getting out of here. Thank you very yeah. much. The, Lysa has this. She starts to say, "You presume like she's gonna." Ca- cancel the results of the duel like she's right. going to kill Tyrion anyway that's clearly what she's about to say there and that just more than anything as you said exposes the soft underbelly of it all Tyrion has to remind Lysa of the Aaron words as high as honor which like if you have to bring it up it's not true just like with Joffrey exactly. saying you know I am the king and that just demonstrates that it's not true if you have to remind someone that they're as high as honor that means they're not actually that honorable absolutely and of course, as you say at the end of the chapter, she condemns him and Braun to an almost certain death on the high road, basically negating the results of the duel. That the, the gods seemed fit to spare Tyrion Lannister, but Lysa is going to interfere anyway because she wants to. When this is how those at the top of the mountain conduct themselves, can you really blame Tyrion for wanting to burn it all down alongside the clansmen? I mean, yes, you can. Yes. As we'll get into that, <laughs> you certainly can blame him for that. But it is, I mean, you can understand where his anger and frustration is coming from because just what a shit show this is. No, it's it's a terrible, awful, fucked up shit show. I, I sympathize a lot with Tyrion being like, you know, I will give you the Veil of Aaron when he tells these mountain sure. clansmen. But at the same time, I, I don't sympathize because it's not just these stupid, awful, ignoble, noble, n- noblemen and knights who are. I see go. what you did there. They're not the ones that are going to be suffering, not alone at least. Yeah, it's also going exactly. to be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of small folk that are going to be caught in the crosshairs of any potential war or battle between the nobility of the Vale and the and the, uh, the Mountain Clansmen. Yeah, again, it's, it's that collateral damage. And while I certainly like Tyrion on a kind of just dialogue personality level more than a lot of the nobles, he still doesn't care about that collateral damage and will happily kill civilians, whether en masse or individuals like Simon Silvertongue, to keep himself and his uh, family on top. And, you know, and coming back to this as a rereader, the, the kind of the ultimate proof of the infuriating nonsense at the heart of this Fool's Festival is, as we've said, that Lysa is in fact the one guilty of this crime. The person oh presiding gosh, over yeah. this festival declaring that Tyrion must suffer for what he's done is the person who did it. The, the, yep. the person that everyone's angry about dying, the structuring absence, as you say, from the power structure of the Vale, John Aaron, Lysa is the one who made that happen. 
And to kind of shift into our foreshadowing and groundwork for the chapter, this chapter, Catalan 7, does contain several glaring hints, especially on reread, that Lysa is not telling mm. the truth. As Catalan notes, and this stands out even to a first-time reader, that Lysa is changing her story. That when she sent the letter to Winterfell, she blamed Cersei for killing Jon Arryn. Now she's declaring that not just that Tyrion was involved, but that it was him. He poisoned Jon Arryn. He is responsible for this. And Catalan thinks that... That's weird. Maybe it's just because Lysa has Tyrion here and doesn't have Cersei in her clutches. But I think that's supposed to stand out to the first time readers. Ah, there's something more going on about the death of Jon Arryn that maybe isn't being told to us. And then on reread, when we know it was Lysa, some things stand out like alarm bells, like Maester Coleman talking about the foster yes. and Sweet Robin. And we know that Lysa having her son taken away from her, as Catelyn will note in her next chapter, just sends Lysa into a complete rage. So that definitely was a huge part of her motivation. And then even the little line when Catelyn is flashing back to Littlefinger's recovery after the duel, quote, Lysa helped her maester nurse him. She'd been softer and shyer in those days. <laughs> Coming back, it's like, ah, yep, that's that, that's that big moment for Lysa when she, she slept with Peter and uh, he thought it was Cat. So that's, again, building in that, that Lysa-Littlefinger relationship. I really like how Martin does this because it does feel like it comes out of nowhere at the end of A Storm of Swords when you learn yeah. about Lysa, that poison John Aaron. But coming, going back to these early Vale chapters, you see Martin kind of building in the hints. No, you're, you're absolutely correct in that. Martin is an excellent writer in that he provides us with, you know, a breadcrumb trail that indicates that, ah, maybe it was Tyrion who sent the cat's pop to Bran. No, it actually wasn't Tyrion who sent the cat's pop to Bran. Well, then who was it then? Was it Jamie? No, it wasn't Jamie. Was it Cersei? No, it wasn't, it wasn't Cersei. It was Joffrey. But at the same time, we see it as well in the poisoning and the death of John Aaron, in which Martin is, wants us to believe as we're, in the Game of Thrones now, and as we progress into Clash and Storm, that it was Cersei who had John Aaron poisoned, but he continues to offer us clues that maybe it wasn't Cersei. You know, we have in Clash and Tyrion's, I think, sixth chapter from A Clash of Kings, where Tyrion interrogates Grandmaster Purcell, and it's indicated there that Cersei did play a role in John Aaron's death and that she sent Maester Coleman away, probably because he, she wanted John Aaron to die. She wasn't the one that actually actually initiated the poisoning to begin with. And I think it's interesting yep. Yep. in this chapter that we get that line from, uh, I think it's a really interesting kind of subtle hinting, uh, that line from Sir Roderick about, ah, well, poison is a woman's weapon. And you're supposed to be like, oh, yeah. that must mean Cersei, right? But then, like, that's Martin a great point. Is completely and totally hinting that it was not Cersei who poisoned John Aaron; it was Lysa at the behest of Littlefinger here. But no, it's it's fantastic, and it, it really helps us to show how how George is a, George is not just a great writer in that he uses beautiful, wonderful imagery. He has fantastic dialogue, but he also has a very dense plot and seeds clues for major reveals early on. So we don't get the reveal that Lysa was the one who poisoned John Aaron until the second to last chapter in A Storm of Swords, right? It's going to be like a hundred plus episodes away from we are from where we are right now. But when that reveal comes, it comes as a shock to us. Like it, it comes to shock even on reread. You're like, oh, oh my gosh! I, I mean, oh, I've yeah. read this before, but I'm, I'm still you makes can my still skin feel tingle. it. Yeah, exactly. When Lysa goes into her tears, tears speech, that still makes the hair stand up because it's such a huge moment. It's 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 a massive moment in the story that just kind of fundamentally shifts and alters our perceptions of the story that we've read up to A Storm of Swords. But at the same time, when you go back and you're rereading these chapters, you see that George is seeding all of those clues for that Lysa reveal, you know, back in chapter 40 or chapter 40, chapter 41, 41. Uh, 40, whatever. This is Catelyn 7. Catelyn 7 of Game of Thrones. There you go. He's seeding this, this reveal all the way back then. 
But there's also a bit more about this chapter, too. And as we transition to our kind of a deep dive or theory discussion section, and it's about Littlefinger, a character who's not precisely present in this chapter. But, you know, he's there all the same, at least in Catelyn's memories. You know, obviously, we know that Littlefinger, you know, he may be bad from from what I understand. Um, he has some faults, perhaps, <laughs> but he has obvious, justifiable reasons for everything that he does, right? I mean, the nobility fucked him, and that means that Baelish is ultimately the hero of the story and is right for doing what he does here and bringing the Starks down to King's Landing and getting his vengeance on them. Because I think if more than anything else, when I read A Song of Ice and Fire, I know that George R. R. Martin is telling us that vengeance is awesome, it is cool, and it is always right. You know, Littlefinger is basically our class warrior, making sure that the Tullys and Starks get their just due for all the shit and terrible things they did to him. Right, Emmett? Jeff, you're wrong. You're ugly, and your theory is bad. Oh, Oh. it happened. Boom, It happened to him. Live by the sword, (laughs) die by the sword, my friend. But no, obviously not. Look, I mean, this is a question that we've kind of touched on in bits and pieces, but since we do get this huge bit of backstory for Littlefinger here, we thought it'd be worth asking, is Littlefinger justified in his revenge quest? And why is the answer no? (laughs) So so that's the question we're going to turn to here. And I think it's, it's, we should start by acknowledging that he does have legitimate grievances. Uh, Hoster Tully sent him home half healed. Like, imagine the pain yeah. of going over, like, like you know, rocks and roots in that litter and feeling the jolt in your, like, your half healed sword wounds. Like, that must have just been horrible for him. Yeah. And, of course, Hoster forcefully aborted uh, Peter's child with Lysa. Yes. Uh, we, don't, we don't know exactly when and how Littlefinger found that out, but we can assume he probably found that out at some point. Uh, Lysa arguably raped him? Given that Peter thinks in his his drunken state that she's Catelyn, I think there's some gray area in terms of in terms of consent there. But I'm willing to say at least Lysa violated Littlefinger's consent. I'm not yes. sure how aware she was that that's what she was doing. But I think it, it gives Peter another legitimate grievance against House Tully. Is what I'm sure. saying. Sure. Yeah. I think it's fair to say Littlefinger was treated very poorly by this family, and he is justified, in my opinion, not only in hating them but in wanting to reduce their influence at court. If all Littlefinger was doing was like manipulating things so the Tullys don't get access to King Robert or like Peter's helping out some of their rivals at court. I would be fine with that. Sure. I think that's 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 a fine use of your politics. I mean, it's kind of petty, but you know, this is we're talking about politicians here. So sure. if, if that's if, if that if those were the worst of Peter Baelish's sins, he would be ahead of most people in King's Landing. Yeah. Having said that, I think <laughs> I think it's really worth noting in this flashback scene to the duel between Brandon and Peter in Riverrun, that Martin is repeatedly making clear that Brandon feels bad for Peter and is trying to show mercy to the kid. He's not coming in there swaggering like a bantam rooster like he usually does. You know, the hot-headed Brandon. He's not acting like Edmure, you know, trying to defend all the Tilly lands. He's kind of acting counter to this critique of the noble chivalric knight that we've been talking about in this chapter. He removes his armor as soon as he sees that Peter doesn't have much. He promises Cat he'll spare the kid. He keeps calling again and again for Littlefinger to yield. He, he's not enjoying this. He doesn't want to hurt right. Littlefinger. He doesn't regard this as a victory. He's, he's just trying to get out of there with as little bloodshed as possible, and Littlefinger is the one who keeps the fight going. This is arguably the kind of most tender, relatable moment we see with Brandon. It's yeah. kind of, I think this and asking a Shardane to dance on Ned's behalf are like the two moments when you see a, a nicer side to this guy, who's generally yeah. cast as kind of a Lothario and maybe a bit of a sleaze, especially when we get to uh, Barbara Dustin. Yep. But... The point I'm making is that there is no case whatsoever for Littlefinger having a legitimate grievance against House Stark. 
No. You can say he has legitimate grievance against House Tully, but his only grievance against Ned is that Ned married Catelyn and that Ned happens to be Brandon's brother. And that's just not good enough as a justification for what Littlefinger does to Ned in this book. Yeah, you know, there's 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 a very strong case to be made here in that Littlefinger embodies a lot of toxic masculinity, as we see here, in that he believes that he deserves Catelyn Stark and that Catelyn Stark was taken from him. And to be fair to his perspective for at least one second, you know, the idea of, of arranged marriages is kind of like taking little taking Catelyn away from Littlefinger. But Catelyn never saw Littlefinger in the same romantic space that he saw her. And that is always exactly. important to come back to and that she had rejected him. And, you know, in that duel itself, she had little she had she put her favor on Brandon Stark, indicating that, look, Peter, look, give up now, man. Like, I'm not going to marry you. If even if by some miracle you win this duel, I'm still not going to marry you because I am I've given my favor to Brandon. I've been promised to Brandon Stark. And, you know, Lysa's words are, you know, family duty honor. She has a duty to marry Brendan Stark. You know, you could call into question numerous things about marriage customs in Westeros and about marriage customs in medieval Europe as, as a whole as well. But at the same time, she's made her decision. Littlefinger is not respecting her decision and decides to fight anyways because, because 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 he's fucking Littlefinger and he's the worst. Exactly. Yeah, there's there's so many great systemic critiques to be made of how Westeros handles marriage customs. But the point is that Littlefinger is not making those critiques. That's right. not what he's doing. He's He is a shitty revolutionary. His ideology sucks and his praxis is worse. I think his crusade would be justifiable or at least sympathetic if he had taken away from his backstory the kind of systemic critique we've been talking about in this chapter. Yeah. If his point was... The nobility are bad because they are fanatically cruel in their enforcement of hierarchy, from my half-healed scars to Lysa's damaged womb. That would be a powerful argument. Mm -hmm. That would be a little finger I could get behind and even maybe root for a little bit. But this guy? This guy is just harming innocence, taking clear pleasure in it, and he has no interest at work beyond his own sense that, as you say, he deserved Catelyn. Note that little detail that he immediately turned on Edmure, just because Edmure was Brandon's squire for the duel. Yep. Like, their friendship was over right there. That's a bad sign yeah. that Littlefinger is already kind of stewing in this in this uh, vengeance narrative. As I said uh, at the beginning of the episode, I don't think he's already a manipulator and schemer enough to get Brandon to go to King's Landing, but the anger is clearly already there. I mean, look at his victims. It's, it's not Hoster Tully, the man who screwed him over. It's yep. Ned Stark, a good man who never did Littlefinger any wrong. It's John Aaron, a good man who not only didn't do Littlefinger any wrong, he gave him a goddamn job. Yep, and promotions. And Littlefinger had him killed. Or Sansa Stark, a literal child, you self-centered prick, whom right. you're just kind of imposing your romantic narrative on and just trying to steal her away from her family as this weird, perverted combination of young Catelyn and the child you wish you had with her. Even Lysa, who, as I said, again, I think did Littlefinger wrong, is so unstable and emotionally dependent on him that... It feels so manipulative on Littlefinger's part to treat her this way. And these are the casualties of Littlefinger aiming for what, as you say? Again, that's his ideology is not the nobility are bad because of these systemic cruelty and these systemic problems. It's the nobility are bad because I didn't get to hit that. Because I right. didn't get the girl. Because the songs lied to me and I didn't get to be the teenage hero. That's Littlefinger's only 
motivation here, and I think that's extremely unsympathetic. I mean, Ned Stark came out of his fall from grace determined to preserve life in the form of Jon Snow. Peter Baelish came out of his fall from grace determined to destroy it. I'm not denying that he has a legitimate grievance against House Tully. I really do feel sympathetic for him in terms of what happens at River Run and afterwards, but what he's made of his life since is just so dark and wretched and unsympathetic that I, I cannot feel for his vengeance crusade at all. No, I, I agree. And I, I think George R. George R. Martin is a, is a huge fan of, of comic books, right? We know that he sure. got his start. His first published work was writing a letter to Stan Lee that was published in, um, I, I can't remember what, which, which, uh, which volume of, of, of Spider-Man. I think it was a Spider-Man uh, novel or, or Spider-Man comic. So I, I like to look at this, moment as kind of the origin story for Littlefinger as a supervillain and kind I of a, in, in kind of a weird way. He reminds me of Ra's al Ghul from Batman Begins okay, in, okay. in that Ra's al Ghul has a legitimate grievance against the world that is around him because, you know, in the, in the backstory from Batman Begins, he explains to Bruce out on that ice lake. He explains to Bruce out on that ice lake that he his wife was was murdered and taken from him and his daughter well his daughter actually wasn't because she shows up in you know the, the third Batman movie but his wife was murdered and taken from him and his response to that is to create a society to or to join a society that eradicates whole human civilizations because they are growing too corrupt too venal too immoral and that's not necessarily a little finger little finger is more the guy who indulges in that immorality and in that cruelty because of his backstory there. But I do think that is in like the two reactions of the two characters do kind of have a somewhat sort of symbiosis there. Now, one of the things about Littlefinger that I think is important in his characterization is that the moment that he loses to Brandon Stark at River Run serves as both an origin story for him as a supervillain, but it also serves to show Littlefinger that he can't necessarily play the Game of Thrones the same way that Brandon Stark can with his sword or that Hoster Tully can with his kind of political alliance making and manipulations. Although we do see Littlefinger kind of doing that with the the Tyrells and, and the Lannisters in A Storm of Swords and in A Clash of Kings. You can see from Littlefinger's arc going forward from there, his, his backstory, that he goes back to the Fingers. Then he's hired to be a, a master of customs at Gulltown at the urging of Lysa. And from there, he rises high and he's able to manipulate and utilize different things about Westerosi society that the nobility of Westeros doesn't understand because, by and large, they're idiots. And even if they're not idiots, you know, understanding finance is something that even today, most people don't understand how, how finance works. I mean, look certainly at, true. Look at the, 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 cri the, the mortgage and the housing crisis from, you know, the 2000s. You know, people didn't really understand how that actually came about. And even now, most people kind of just have no idea how, how it occurred. I mean, I, I do recommend watching The Big Short if you guys have not watched that because it does a really good job of kind of plebbing it up for even a person like me who's not necessarily an economist or, or expert in finance to understand it. But no, Littlefinger utilizes these different things to gain his way, to claw his way into power. More and more power, he assumes and accumulates more and more power. And, you know, so far in the story, he's seemingly doing well for himself. He's risen from... The guy who gets nearly cut in half by Brendan Stark to the Master of Customs at Gulltown to the Master of Coin in King's Landing, the Lord of Harrenhal, the Lord Protector of the Vale and for Sweet Robin. 
But, you know, ultimately, as a good supervillain, he is going to end up falling. And it's going to be so great when he does, man. It's going to be so great that this guy who embodies all of the worst tendencies of a shitty revolutionary to have the revolution kind of eat him in the form of Sansa Stark. And it's going to be good. Perfectly said, sir. For what profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And that's Peter Baelish right there. Absolutely. I think it's 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 kind of a perverse rags to riches story, as you say. And what undercuts it is his relationship to the feudal structure and to the songs and the dreams and what the loss of those dreams has led him to do. And ultimately, he, instead of tearing down the system that hurt him to build something new, he has mimicked its worst aspects. Peter Baelish has become as bad, if not worse, than someone like Hoster Tilly and certainly worse than John Aaron and Ned yes. Stark. So I think Martin is showing how even in fighting against a system, you can end up being corrupted by it and end up making it worse. And I think, obviously, we're going to be seeing a lot more of that as we go uh, with Peter Baelish, but it's it's all, it's all it's part of the class critique we were talking about in this chapter. It's not separate from it. It's just from a different angle, I think, with Littlefinger. True that, man. So... I think that about wraps us for this chapter. Thanks everyone for listening and thank you so much for all of our patrons for supporting us on Patreon. Please rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, all the great places where you can find your podcast. We appreciate and love you guys very much. Thanks so much for listening. Absolutely. Check out our Patreon if you haven't at patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F on social media. You can follow us at not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. Personally, you can find me uh, at Poor Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. So join us in two weeks as we return to the wall for the first time in a minute. Man, it's been like, I feel like it's two months since we've been with Jon Snow. Isn't it? I think it's about that. I think even more. It's been quite a bit since uh, we last checked in with the brothers at the wall and got introduced to Samuel Tarly. But yes, uh, on our next episode, Jon Snow will be offered his black cloak, and he will fight to make sure that Sam gets one as well. So I'm looking forward to that. I am too. And as, as we said at the beginning of this episode, please ensure to check us out for our live reactions to the George R. R. Martin event in Jersey City with the Girls Gone Cannon podcast and Joe the Magician. We're really looking forward to that. And our next Patreon episode about our initial impressions and analysis An initial analysis of Fire and Blood Volume 1 is coming your way next week. So thank you all very much for listening, and we will see you all next time. Take care, everybody.